Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, I'm Edward Greenspan and welcome to Policy Speaking. We come together today at a disorienting moment in history. Our lives have been tossed this way and that in recent months by three concurrent and overlapping crises, one about health, What about the economy and what about race, diversity and inclusion? The killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May and too many similar incidents before and since have galvanized the black community and led to what may be an awakening among non-blacks about the persistent rot of systemic racism. Many of us have been forced to challenge our own parts in this social evil. At the Public Policy Forum, we know we need to do more and do better in fighting anti-black racism and all the myriad manifestations of hate that perpetuate themselves year after year, decade after decade. Before recent events, PPF had organized a seven-person commission on democratic expression, which is examining how to deal with online hate and disinformation and other harms that inhibit participation in the digital public square. That's just one small way we hope to make a difference as we set out on our own learning journey, but we know there's more to do. Today, we're speaking with someone with the lived experience of a black man in Canada and with considerable experience as well in the political system. The Honorable Ahmad Hussein is the first Somali Canadian elected to the House of Commons and the only black member of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's cabinet. Pleased to have you on Policy Speaking, Minister. Thank you so much, Ed, uh, for having me today. Well, our pleasure completely. So these past few weeks have been, I think, difficult for many Canadians, especially Black Canadians. And as the only Black member of Cabinet, I can imagine a lot has been asked of you. So let me just ask you to start. How how are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. I, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we're all uh, uh, dealing with this pandemic and we are trying uh, our best as uh, as politicians, as, as, as those in uh, positions of responsibility and leadership to do whatever we can to help Canadian families, to help uh, uh, workers and, and everyone else and the most vulnerable. Uh, personally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm adapting. I have three, uh, three young boys who are two of which are not going to school, obviously, and the youngest uh, was, was going to daycare. He's not, he's, he, they're all at home. And so it's putting uh, additional pressures, of course, on my wife and myself. But we've adapted. We are homeschooling them, uh, mostly by my wife, uh, Ebien, and uh, we're doing what we can. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's not easy, but we're, we're staying safe and uh, we're doing what we can to, uh, to adjust to the situation. Okay, well, on, on top of that, of course, we've had um, the aftermath of, uh, of George Floyd's killing. And I watched a few of the media interviews you did around that time. And uh, just speaking of your boys, you said one of the hardest parts of this was finding the words with which to explain this to them. And at that point, you had not found those words and had not yet explained it to them, but I imagine you have yeah. since. What, what words did you eventually find? I, I had to kind of dance around the bush and not really 
get into the graphic nature of the video because that video of jo- of the George Floyd death is 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 really really hard to process even for adults let alone children and so i i talked to to my my three boys uh, i mean the the youngest is is too young to understand but the other two uh, I, I spoke to them about about society and 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 and, and about the, the importance of seeing the humanity in everyone and i and i asked them to to come to me whenever they see uh, images or 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 when they interact with things that don't make sense or or, or or don't reaffirm their humanity. And it was my way to kind of gently try to introduce to them what inevitably they will be introduced to in this world, which is that uh, they will have uh, incidents and situations in which people will remind them that they're Black and that they somehow don't belong uh, and, and, and can't have the same treatment that, that is meted to everyone else. But I, I didn't really get into the George Floyd killing because I'm still processing that. And I have spoken to a lot of black Canadians who are adults who are finding it really hard to, to deal with that. You know, you, you, you read a lot about, um, you know, violence, uh, you know, suffered by, uh, by black Canadians and other racialized Canadians, uh, and other racialized Canadians at the hands of, of police or, or other uh, other um, institutions in our country, but uh, I think the George Floyd killing it galvanized people because it was it was you could see in in the eight minutes and forty six seconds you could see a human being slowly uh, lose their life at the hands of a police officer at the hands of someone who has sworn to keep. Uh, him and other members of the community safe. I can't. I I can't show that video to my three young boys. It, I, I'm dealing with it still, and yeah. it's 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 tough. It's it's it 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 goes against everything that we we respect, which is law enforcement and police and respect for authority. And to see not only the one who had his knee on on George Floyd's neck, but the others standing around and, and kind of just having their hands in their pockets as if this is just business as usual. It, it, it's beyond traumatizing. And I, I, can't, I can't do that to my boys yet. I, I don't think they'll be able to, 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 to process that. Well, I hope that they won't have to experience the same things that you have had to experience. And yes. you've, you've spoken about this. And I don't know if you're optimistic that, uh, that they won't, but you, you experience this as, as someone who's had this lived experience of feeling uh, the brunt of racism. And I guess I would add also as somebody who I think has had involvement with police and involvement with law enforcement uh, as as an advisor uh, and at different uh, points in your career. So this this must be very personal for you. Yes, and thank you, Ed, for saying that because I'm an optimist and I I, I hope my my kids and, and the other children of racialized Canadians in Canada don't experience what we experience. So I'm I'm an optimist in the sense that I always feel that we can do better, and uh, and and we have to believe that. I mean, we have to believe that we can do better than this. And I have seen on a very micro level, very much earlier in my life, when community came together and reached out to police 
and appealed to their humanity and appealed to their sense of justice and worked with them to address the real concerns around community safety, but do so in a way that is collaborative. I think things, were, things changed. And 51 Division, which is the Toronto Police Service Division in Regent Park, uh, was, was transformed, not just by the officers themselves, but by the engagement of the community led by the Regent Park Community Council, of which I was a co-founder. So I, I do believe that better is possible. And I think, I mean, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be in public office and I wouldn't, uh, I, I think we can do better uh, institutionally as, as a society. And, and I think government and leaders across different orders of government has, have a special role to play in, uh, in moving that agenda forward. And, and, and it'll be in fits and starts because I, I don't know if you, you saw when, when this conversation was finally had in Canada in a, in a, national, in a national way, uh, there were those who, who, ref, who were refusing to see this as, as a challenge for us and, and explicitly said that this is something that uh, is really an American problem. And this is something that you encounter a lot in Canada. And I always say that uh, in, in some ways that takes away from an opportunity for us to actually deal with our own challenges. We do have a problem with uh, anti-Indigenous uh, racism and discrimination in Canada. We do have a problem with anti-Black racism in Canada. It is real. It is real simply because it is real for far too many people in our community. And for... And for those who would deny that, it, it, it's, 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 it's hurtful because you're denying the lived daily reality of so many people. I want to return in a second to the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. But I think it's important for people to understand it and hear it firsthand because it's not abstract. It's not abstract to you. So right. Right. Um, I, I was watching a 2017 TEDx talk you gave, yes, which, yes. which I recommend to everybody on YouTube. It's a, yeah. it's a terrific talk. And, and you describe some incidents, both as growing up in Regents Park and being profiled, but even as a political staffer to, oh, yeah. um, to you know, <laughs> at, at, at Queen's Park. And may, yes, maybe, right. you could, may, maybe you could just describe one of those incidents. Uh, so, and, and, and I come at this slightly different uh, because I wasn't born in Canada. So I came as a refugee, as a young man from East Africa, and I, I will be eternally grateful to Canada for being a place of sanctuary for me, for being a place where I was able to restart my life and, and uh, benefit from a lot of ser community services and opportunities. But at the same time, th there was this dark underbelly of racial profiling and racism. And, and, that, and we, ha we, have to be very, we have to be very honest about that for, for those of us who, who encounter this. And that doesn't take away from our appreciation as Canada uh, being a, a country, our country, that that has has been good to us, but also can be even better for so many. So, so I come at it from from that angle, and that is why living in Regent Park and being profiled constantly was such a letdown. Because for me, Canada represented a generous country that welcomes the others and embraces differences and enables people, gives people the tools to succeed. So you have that Canada. But then you have a police service that was targeting not just myself, but my friends and simply profiling us because of the color of our skins. And uh, we couldn't do basic things like walk down the street or 
just minding your own business, you would you you would be you would be profiled left and right, and and that happened enough to to let us know that it wasn't a coincidence or a one-time thing. It was clearly um, done uh, more to us than to to young people who were not uh, black Canadian, who are our friends, and 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 also the manner in which it was done, the hostility behind it, the the humiliation, the 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 fact that it it makes you it makes you feel basically it, it ruins your entire day and it reminds you that racism again like you said ed is not an abstract thing but for you it's a lived reality that you have to navigate and you have to pre-plan and know that you know on any given evening when you're walking to your friend's house or you're going to uh, catch a movie or something that you know sometimes you may be 20 or 30 minutes late because you'll be profiled. And so you have to factor that in, into your trip in a way that your white friend doesn't have to do that, right? Then you begin to very quickly in, in your life, because you've only, you only came to Canada in the early to mid 1990s, and, and very quickly you, you end up working in a political office and you and I uh, have bonded over politics and that we, yes, both, yes. Uh, we both see politics as, as, as a vehicle of change and, and a vehicle that's good for people. So you, you get this position uh, in the leader of opposition's office and it becomes the premier. And then there's one of his supporters who, who can't believe that you're a political staffer. Right. can't accept that. I mean, yeah. just t- tell me about that for a moment. But you know what's funny? I mean, that I, I, I tell that story, but th- there's so many similar stories like that, that, that you lose count. But, but that, that particular one I remember because it was, it was more, <laughs> the, the dialogue lasted longer than, than in other situations. So I, I remember it very clearly. So we, we, were, we were a new government. I had, I had gotten a promotion uh, when I was... Uh, when I started off uh, in the leader of the opposition's uh, office, I was a general assistant and I basically opened the mail and answered the phone. And then I, I slowly started to get promoted because I, I, I worked hard and I, I, I volunteered beyond my position to help others on the team. When you're in opposition, you don't have the same number of staff as the government, obviously. So you have to do more. Uh, and luckily for me, I, I was able to get along with everybody and, and slowly move up. And by the time we formed government, I actually ended up working with the late uh, Arnold Chan, my friend, my dear late friend, Arnold Chan, who became chief of staff to, uh, to the premier in his role as minister of intergovernmental affairs. And I became one of his special advisors. And we were, we, we were thrown right into uh, planning for the Council of the Federation, the Premier's Conference for that year. And as luck would have it, we, we ended up hosting that meeting that year. So the first year we're in power, within the first year, we, we, Ontario was hosting the Premier's. And we ended up hosting them. And uh, after the formal program, after the end of the first day of the formal program, in the evening, there was a reception where leaders in industry and entertainment and academia were invited to come come and mingle with the premiers and uh, and we had dinner and while we were waiting for the elevator it was a huge bunch of us we, we had just finished being entertained by a, a, a group a performance group from south africa who were wearing all black and they had just finished the entertainment and we were being herded to go upstairs to to have dinner and I stood behind this uh, wealthy individual who was who was not a member of the government. He was uh, 
he was one of the invited guests and he looked around me and he said, he looked at, at me as someone who was a little bit out of place and I was wearing a suit and everything. And he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, are you an, an entertainer? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not an entertainer. The entertainers are over there. They're wearing, they're wearing black uh, jeans and black t-shirts, all of them from South Africa. And I said, I'm wearing a suit, sir. Like I'm not one of the, he said, then what are you? I said, well, just like that, what are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the political staffers for the premier. And then he, he scoffed and said, how did you get that job? And I said, well, I worked hard. I, I went to school and I, uh, yeah. And then, uh, so we went back and forth. And then he said, and then I told him, I said to him, I, I told him the, <laughs> the irony is I said, you know, my, my older brother works for you. And he said, what's his name? I said, I'm not going to tell you so you can fire him. And then he said, oh, you're a very slippery one or something like that. And anyway, we had a very difficult conversation. And then I just walked away and we had dinner. At the end of the evening, his wife brought him to me and he apologized. And he said, I'm sorry, I was, uh, I was uh, insensitive and I made some racist remarks and so on. And I said, that's fine. And, and we moved on. But we had, I, I mean, I, I, I would... I had a number of incidents like that, so but comes with the this. Is, this is two thousand and three in Canada. This was two thousand and four. Yes, two thousand and four in Canada. Okay, and uh, the assumption that uh, that a, a man of color can't be a political staffer is, yes. is hard for somebody to compute. Correct. Do you think that we're? I, I have. By the way, I had a very similar incident in the Superior Court of Ontario. So I went to Superior Court and for your lawyer listeners they'll they'll know this just for uh, for people who don't know you are a lawyer so, yes so I, I i was i mean i practiced criminal law and immigration and human rights but in my criminal defense one day i had to go and represent an accused in uh, in criminal law it was superior court so when you go to superior court you have to be robed in the ontario court of justice you 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 can wear a suit but in the superior court you have to be robed so, and it's, it's much more formal than, than the other courts. So when you go there, you have to write your name. They, they have these little pieces of paper where you, you write, there's a place for the lawyer and the place for the accused. And it actually says accused, and then there's a space and then the time and so on. So I put all that info and I gave it to the clerk and you have to wait your turn. So you, you get called by the clerk and then your matter is raised, right? So I, I kept standing there in my robe and my matter was not being called. And after a while, lawyers who came after me were being called. Their matters were being called. And then we had a recess. So at the recess, I went to the clerk because the, ju the judge left for his chambers. At the recess, uh, I went to the clerk and I said, how come my name hasn't been called yet? And she looked at me and she said, did you write it down? I said, yes. And she looked and she looked and she looked and and I said, there, that, that, that's where it is. That's, that's me. And I, and I pointed to the paper. And she said, oh, forgive us. We made a mistake. We thought you were one of the accused. And not me in the robe, but the name. The name was similar to a lot of folks who were being arraigned that day. Uh, what do you say to that? <laughs> Just... what, 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 what did you say to that? I, 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 I was speechless. I, I'm normally, I usually have a comeback, but I didn't have anything to say. I just, okay. I just shrugged my shoulders and, and, and waited for my turn.
So let's let's come to the present for a moment. A couple of weeks ago, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh sought to pass a unanimous motion uh, through the House of Commons, uh, calling out the RCMP for systemic racism, among other things. Those of us yep. who know the motion know it was more complicated than that. But yes, uh, yes. But that yeah. but that was critical, and a Bloc Quebecois MP uh, refused to concur. Mr. Singh. Um, called him a racist and was expelled from the House of Commons. So as a member of parliament of color, how do you react to what happened that day? I, I think it is, it was interesting to see that the discomfort that was felt in the house by, me, by some folks is something that I've seen all the time. When you call out racism, it generates tension in the room. And that tension, you could feel it that day. And I, it was very familiar to me because that's what happens when uh, a person of color calls out racism uh, in, in certain settings, uh, you're met with hostility and, and tension. I think it is the onus is on the block to explain to the only person of, of color leader in Canada why they refuse to support uh, something calling for a study of systemic racism with, within our law enforcement. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's on them. And uh, I think on this one, uh, they, they, you know, uh, the, the onus is on them to do that. Do, do you feel institutional racism in the Parliament of Canada? No, I, I mean, I would say, like, when I was new, it, this happened to a number of us, myself and other members of Parliament of Color. We were stopped, uh, we were stopped at the door a couple of times uh, by, by security personnel not believing that we were members of Parliament. But, you know, you take these things in stride. Look, I, I, I don't want to dwell too much on the personal because it's real and it's there. And the sad thing is because it happens quite frequently to many, many people, not me only, like me, we're talking about, these are the, the lived daily realities of for, for far too many Canadians. And in, in, in some cases for young black men, it is way more frequent than, than, than myself and others that you kind of get, I mean, you don't get used to it, but you, you just learn to adapt. And, and that's the, it's a sad thing to say, but it's the truth. It is a revelation to others. I mean, when I said uh, on a on a TV show a couple of weeks ago, when this this issue for, you know was was raised in the Canadian media, I, I, I spoke very nonchalantly about being followed in stores, uh, even at this time. And and the 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 interviewer was completely surprised by that. And they said, even now, as a cabinet minister, you're followed. And I mean, I was surprised by his surprise. I was surprised by, by, by that reaction because it just shows how folks, are, a lot of folks are simply not aware of the lived daily reality of far too many people in Canada who happen to be Indigenous and Black. Well, so this is a very important point because you've said and you spoke, you referred earlier to the United States and you have said that anti-Black racism is as Canadian as anything else. It doesn't stop at the U.S. border. That's yeah. what I said. And because there is a tendency to kind of say, well, it's, an, it's worse in the United States, so therefore we don't have to do as much, or it's not really a problem here. You've heard people say that. I mean, Premier Doug Ford said that. He said it's not as bad here as the systemic issues they have in the US. That, I mean, completely offside. I'm glad he walked it back after. But are you kidding? Like, 
you know, so, so anyway. So, so to what extent would you would you um, counsel people to think about uh, the United States? I mean, how would you separate out or would you separate out at all the experiences that we're seeing in the United States and the experiences that we're seeing in Canada? Like, at what point are they in a Venn diagram overlapping? And at what, po and at what point at all are they different? I, look, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the United States. What I would say is I, when you talk about sy systemic issues in Canada with respect to race, the, almost immediately the U United States is brought up. And I think that is unfortunate because we can talk about the United States, but why does it have to be quickly in, in reaction to, to Canadian issues? We have our own issues. We have our own issues. Uh, I mean, I you know, you can talk about the merits of a case, but ultimately the, the numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. Uh, according to, to Statistics Canada, for example, black males uh, are the black young men and, 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 and adults are the only group in Canada that whose employment earnings and educational attainment actually uh, regresses after each generation, it doesn't improve. Other visible minorities, it improves. It starts from a low point, but it improves. If you look at the employment rate of young black men in, in Toronto, in the greater Toronto area, it is more than double uh, for, 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 the, for their contemporaries. If you look at housing, if you look at poverty, if you look at interactions with police, if you look at mental health, anytime a person of color, especially black, interacts with with, 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 with law enforcement, it, it is more likely than for other people that it will end up in serious physical harm or death. Th these, are th these are backed by studies and data. Uh, and, and we know because numerous, numerous reports have been done over the years and calls to action and recommendations that have sat on shelves in all levels of government for too long. But we are now, I think we now have an opportunity to learn. We now have an opportunity to have these conversations. We now have an opportunity to make people feel safe so that they can actually talk about their experiences. And then we, ha we, we all uh, now have an opportunity to not only learn about the systemic nature of this stuff, we have an opportunity to improve as, as, a, as a society. And by the way, when we talk about systemic issues, we're not saying that individuals necessarily are racist. You know, you don't have to be a racist judge to have a systemically racist outcome in the justice system. This is what people are finding it hard to, to conceptualize. We, we, we gotta address the systemic issues. Yes, there's always the concept of bad apples in different institutions, but even among those bad apples, if there were no systemic issues, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be, feel emboldened enough to do the horrible things that they think that, 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 that they can get away with, right? Yeah, I know Minister, you have just a couple of minutes left, so I'm gonna be very quick here for a moment. You've spoken about how as a policymaker, you need more race-based data to work with. You just yes. cited some yes. race-based data, but, yes. but that's a big priority for you uh, as well, Oh, absolutely. Right? It is not only a priority for me, it is a priority for our entire government. We, we recognize the importance of getting that granular, disaggregated data because it, it, it results in better policymaking. 
and it results in more inclusion in the economy of Canadians who've been left out. Not just racialized Canadians, but Canadians with disabilities, people affected by poverty, seniors and others. And so the, the, the richer the data that we have, the better it is. And we do collect this data. The, the sad thing is we collect it at the provincial level, we collect it at the municipal level, we collect it at the federal level, but it's making it work and getting it in a granular way to policymakers so that we can make better decisions. We talk, for example, I can tell you that uh, the, the Canada Child Benefit has lifted hundreds of thousands of children out of poverty. But I cannot tell you what percentage of those kids were indigenous or, or black, right? Mm -hmm. because, because when you start to get those numbers, you start to see whether there's a disparity, whether there is a lack of access, and then you can form policy to ensure that those benefits that Canadians are eligible for and should receive do not end up coming back to government. We receive hundreds of millions of dollars back in government revenue for benefits that shouldn't be coming back to government, that should be going to those who actually need them the most. And part of the reason they're unable to access those benefits is because of systemic barriers that prevent them from, uh, from doing so. Were you pleased by the um, decision to end streaming at grade nine in Ontario? Schools? Yes, I was celebrating that. I, I have fought against that for years with, uh, with, with Somali Canadian mothers whose kids have been streamed for so long. I mean, those are the kinds of policies that, again, you can have a, a wonderful teacher. You can have a wonderful group of teachers and a principal in a school. But it's the policy that's discriminatory and racist. That's your systemic point. Well, exactly, right? So people always thinking that it is the job of black Canadians to, to say who's racist and who's not. That's not the issue. It's not, this is not personal. This is systemic. This is societal. And we got to do better as a, as a country. And we, we can be an amazing example for the rest of the world in how we constantly work to include more people who are simply marginalized in our own country. And marginalized not because we're bad people, but because we have systems in place that are broken. And those systems need to change and to become more inclusive. So last question, uh, just yeah. on that final point is, uh, in that 2017 TEDx talk, you said, we in Canada need to redefine our greatness as a country. Yes. yes. What did you mean by that? And my team at PPF wants to know how they can help, how allyship yeah, is so, very important for them. What I mean by that is, first of all, I think there is a lot of power in an individual or a community or a country exposing its flaws and committing to do better and working at those challenges. I think there's a lot of strength in that. And it's counterintuitive because countries like to thump their chests and talk about how great they are and so on. But true greatness comes from vulnerability and, and, and the, the uncomfortable uh, point of you and I having a discussion about race or about disability or, or other things that, that keep other Canadians away from, the, uh, from, from full participation. And I think we can redefine greatness for the rest of the world in the same way that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did that when he went to the UN and he spoke to the General Assembly about, uh, about Canada's challenges with reconciliation and the broken relationship that Canada has had for decades with Indigenous peoples. And he laid that bare in front of the world. But he then followed up by saying, 
we are trying to fix that by building a new relationship, by building, by working on reconciliation. And by the way, you're welcome to come and work with us on these issues. I think that's a really interesting way to approach these issues because normally you don't see that in, uh, in global leaders. So what I was saying was, we are, we are a fantastic country that, uh, that is generous, that is, that is modest, that, uh, that, that, that believes in caring for your fellow Canadian. But far too many of us are excluded and marginalized. And I think this conversation is long overdue. And I, and I think having these conversations and then following it up with systemic change to include more people in, a, in all our different levels of, of government and, and private sector and community can only make us better as a country. It can only make us better. What can a policy forum do? I think one of the things that I have, I have heard from members of, of, of Black Canadian communities across Canada, and I'm, I'm here paraphrasing them, uh, is they've said that fighting against anti-Black racism and discrimination is very tiring. It's a very lonely journey. It's tough. And, and so it cannot be left to Black Canadians and Indigenous Canadians to dismantle these systems and to include more people. And I think one of the things that Policy Forum can do is work on, first of all, representation, because if those voices are not within policy, public policy forum, then you won't get those perspectives, so you lose out. The second thing is for you to take a stance against the systemic barriers that prevent folks uh, from fully participating in society, in our economy, in our uh, NGO sector, in, 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 in sports, in, in government, right? In politics, in media. I mean, media is the one, uh, one of the main institutions in our country that holds everyone else to account, but have they held themselves to account in terms of their diversity? And so public policy forum can be one of the organs that, that, that looks into that, you know? And so I expect a lot from public policy because you understand the importance of making good public policy for our benefit as a society. But you can't do that if you're not inclusive, if you're not aware uh, to the unconscious biases all around us. And so we got to look at everything. We got to look at law enforcement. We got to look at our justice system. We got to, I mean, the last, I'll end with a, with, a, with a personal experience because we started off with a personal experience. When I was practicing as a criminal defense lawyer, one of my favorite things to do was to, to represent young accused because the Youth Criminal Justice Act is, gives you a lot of tools to kind of divert young people away from the criminal justice system while still holding them responsible and accountable. The story I wanna leave you with is this. I went one day to visit my client at the uh, Roy McMurdy Youth Detention Center. And there were 71 youth being held there at that time. 70 out of 71 were black, Ed. Wow. And nobody blinked an eye. It, 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 this stuff is invisible to so many of us. We've, we've become accustomed to this. But for me, it stopped me in my tracks. Because it just, it just those are the kinds of things that just shock you uh, as, 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 as a member of, of the black Canadian community. So I think we need to do better. And, uh, and, and, and we need to, 
yeah, we can compare ourselves to the United States, but that shouldn't take us off the hook. That should be our standard, uh, for sure. I want to thank you, Minister, for your time, for your enlightenment. I know, as you said, a lot of people are tired. A lot of people in racialized communities, it's fatiguing to have to be explainers of this, but yeah. but I appreciate you taking the time to explain, to, uh, to illustrate, to uh, teach. And I guess if I have one fervent hope, uh, it's that your boys will have a whole different experience in life. That's what I'm working on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ed. Appreciate it. Well, that was... Uh, quite a moving and important discussion. I'm now going to invite two of my PPF colleagues, Katie Davey and Victoria Kuketz, to join me to, to talk a little bit about uh, about our discussion with Minister Hussein. And welcome onto the show, Katie and Victoria. I'm glad that you could uh, you could be with us to listen to this podcast and to uh, to talk about it a little bit. So I I, I guess um, uh, you know I'm I'm very moved by his lived experience. I'm very moved by his analysis. I'm very moved by his optimism uh, of, uh, of a better tomorrow. I just uh, wonder, um, uh, Victoria, let's start with you and then we'll go to you, Katie, of, of uh, what your main takeaways are. Yeah, so I was particularly struck about the collaborative nature of the work to be done going forward. And I think that there are a few things that really come to mind. I think some of the work and some of the kernels that came out of the minister's conversation was that you know, awareness, acknowledgement, and the work to be done and who belongs and who doesn't belong is a huge thing that we all have to do. I was particularly struck by the idea of what does a lawyer look like? What does a politician look like? And this is largely about representation and belonging. So we need to be more inclusive and champion diverse voices so we can change those stereotypes of when Minister Hussein walks into the House of Parliament or walks into a political gathering that so that everyone who's a guest there is welcomed rather than criticized or, st or stereotyped. So that was something that struck me particularly. Yep. Katie? Yeah, I mean, two things that really stood out to me and one Victoria builds off of that really well. I think over these last few weeks, something that has become very apparent is that we don't know people's lived experience. We only know our own lived experience. And as allies, what we might sometimes do is hear an offhanded comment or hear, see something that we think, oh, that's not so bad. And we don't do anything. We don't stand up. We don't call it out. But what we're not realizing as allies and bystanders is that this might be the third time today that the same comment has been made. Or the minister said these occurrences are so frequent to him that he remembers some of them and he can point to some examples, but they're just so frequent that it's not relevant in a way to bring it up. And I think, yeah, from an ally perspective, it's important for us to remember that when we do see and hear these comments and remember that for us, it might be one thing we're seeing and hearing, but to the person that's experiencing it, that's not the case. I think also to actually a report that I worked on this past year with uh, the Action Canada Fellowship, we looked at the future of work and um, refugee newcomers to Canada. And it was really important to a few of our members, to all of our members, but it was important that we include a recommendation around um, racism and discrimination, mainly because many of the newcomer refugees to Canada are um, either Muslim or Black or both. And it was important to recognize that there, there are major barriers that are intersecting 
with their status as a refugee to Canada. And we actually got feedback over and over and over and over again by folks reviewing that paper that it didn't make sense to actually have that recommendation there. It wasn't a future of work or it wasn't a work recommendation. And we decided to keep it. And again, in hindsight, and particularly around these conversations these last few weeks, I'm really happy that we did that. And I'll say that that really came from the leadership of a few of our group members holding on to that nugget and not letting it go. And I think the minister really made it clear again that all of these factors are so intersecting. And again, it's important that we understand how racism, how discrimination factors in to things like the future of work and to things like workplace participation. So those are two things that really, really stuck out to me. I should just say for the background of people listening that Action Canada is a young adult leadership program and policy program that uh, the Public Policy Forum runs and every year 15 or 16 young adults in their ascendancy in Canada are fellows of that program and, uh, and have an opportunity to both get exposed to leadership situations and to work on some policy issues. So, and Katie is one of our uh, past fellows of that. Speaking of our work, and uh, Victoria, I think you're liaising in some of uh, the work that we're about to do with Ryerson's Diversity Institute and the Future Skills Centre, but we've also been releasing a series of papers to begin with. Uh, this next round of work will really be how the COVID situation, how the crisis has changed the future work and made it more the present of work. But in one of the papers that I think we've released recently, we see that when you don't have blind hiring processes and when there's a foreign sounding name that comes to someone in a resume they are 40 percent less likely to get an interview than somebody a different name with the exact same resume that's that's a pretty blatant condemnation i guess of of our hiring and that our hiring is systemically racist isn't it yeah, I think it's really staggering and I think it's very hard to acknowledge, but I think this is something that we absolutely need to work on head on. And I think we need to think about this as a larger web and, you know, how per pervasive the nature of power is that people ultimately can sometimes fear difference and that this is something that is a learned experience and we really have to unlearn it. Just going back to the minister's some of the comments the ministers made before about this being an American problem or this being a Canadian problem. I really wonder if to some extent Canadians have a hard time being vulnerable and examining those flaws because it can be easier to offload our colonial baggage and sometimes racist baggage and to actually do the work that, that's required. So really, I think it has to start with acknowledgement with the uh, willingness to do the research, to take in the data, to be a student of history, to be well-read, and to be news literate. Because I think that when you actually take in the information as it stands, then you can really start to change the optics of the situation and understand the power structures as they're operating. Yeah, I was struck as well by how the minister was able to unpack systemic racism from personal racism or lack thereof that the I think he said the lawyer the judge may not be racist but they're working in a system where he gave us some examples uh, including the incredulity that Ahmad Hussain would be a lawyer and not an accused but I think that's important for people who don't feel that they're racist to understand that these two things can can exist you can be a person of goodwill in a system 
that is that has systemic uh, falls and faults in it. Absolutely. I think the unconscious part of it is really the hard part because the more conscious acts and the more conscious thoughts are more easily apprehended. But sometimes people aren't even aware of the unconscious biases that they bring. So that's really, I think, where the work uh, begins to really look at those practices and to really, you know, do the learning so that, you know, you can unpack both unconscious as well as conscious bias. Yeah, I, th I think the minister also, you know, he said something that really stuck with me, which was true greatness comes from vulnerability. And yeah, he was talking about Canada as a nation when he was talking about that. But I think that's something that we can all personally really internalize. We come to situations with vulnerability rather than rather than skepticism or I'm trying to find the right word here. I get, <laughs> it's eluding me. I apologize. But if we come to situations with vulnerability, we're going to be much more likely to want to learn and be willing to learn and willing to unpack and willing to recognize when in some cases we do have bias and tend to lean towards a position that is not favorable. So I think, yeah, if we can personally internalize vulnerability, I think we can really individually do a lot to unpack these systems as well. Yeah, I was on a call earlier this week with um, one of the founders of uh, the new Black Opportunity Fund. And uh, he spoke about what he thought was an awakening happening among non-Blacks, an awakening, a, a phrase I borrowed in my opening. And I should um, attribute that it, uh, it was a, a phrase that, um, that came from someone else. I think it's, although it's such a great burden on people to, to tell these stories, I think for those people who don't have the lived experience and don't completely understand, it's important that they, they hear other stories like the ones that the minister said, because I don't think they know it exists. And without education as a beginning um, foundation, then it's difficult to move to, uh, to action, either personally or in a policy way. So I'll think I'll leave it at that. We've had a long discussion, and I'm sure it was exhausting for the minister. And I'm sure it's very emotional for a lot of people uh, listening to it as well. I want to thank both of you, Katie and Victoria, for, for joining us for, for this part of the discussion. And, and I want to thank the minister again. And I want to uh, thank those of you who have uh, uh, listened to, uh, uh, to this. We try to talk about policy on policy speaking and we try to talk about the root causes of issues that need to be addressed through policy and in personal lives and i think this is an important one and i appreciate the time that uh that we had for it today and i have learned a lot at the end of our podcast we like to take a moment to salute some of the above and beyond the call of duty effort being made by PPF members and partners in this crisis. So today I want to point out two of our members who are doing extraordinary work. The Law Society of Ontario has compiled information and resources to assist its members as they navigate the pandemic in terms of their licensing, examinations, practice management, and accreditation. From an operations perspective, the Law Society has provided resources to help law professionals and the public navigate disruptions associated with the pandemic. The Society has also welcomed 1,262 new lawyers in June through the implementation of an online administrative call process. So we are PPF proud of our member of the Law Society of Ontario for adapting and innovating. We also want to salute our member YMCA Canada, 
which has been identifying new ways to build healthy, connected communities during the pandemic. The YMCA is a charity that offers programs and social support networks at more than 1,700 locations across Canada. They help people become healthier in spirit, mind, and body. Aside from their regular inclusive programming, they have launched YMCA at Home, a free website offering virtual YMCA experience to help us all keep healthy in spite of physical distancing measures. Their programming includes digital continuation of education and training and special engagement initiatives for newcomers and youth. They have also added activities for the whole family, including wellness programs and even the new YCAMP, a free virtual camp experience for children, which went live on July 6th. So we are PPF proud as well of the YMCA Canada for their continued leadership in keeping Canadians connected and cared for. So that is a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National Newswatch. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know on Twitter at, at PPFForumCA. That is at PPForumCA. And you could write us at any place on our email, uh, comment anywhere you like, uh, good or bad or helpful. Helpful is better than unhelpful. So we would appreciate hearing from you. Till next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.